Hello, everyone. Welcome once again to Launch Today, where the podcast focuses on what it takes to get your new business to a million dollars or more in revenue, from marketing tactics to incredible guest speakers. We focus on sharing behind-the-scenes insight from masters in their field. If you want to go revenue for your startup or business, you don't want to miss today because Sarah Platt is an expert from the other side of the table from most founders. She helps VCs with their due diligence. A graduate of the Naveen Jindal School of Management at University Tech at Dallas, UT Dallas. I'm not sure what UT is here. Yes, University of Texas at Dallas. There we go. Sarah has built an impressive career. She's been instrumental in helping uh, shape the entrepreneurial ecosystem in Austin, Texas, and develops key relationship with founded VC students and other members of the startup community. Thanks for coming on the show today, Sarah. Absolutely. It's so great to be here. That's awesome. All right. So I always like to ask in the beginning, because it's interesting to see how people have arrived at this point in their careers. Why do you do what you do? Absolutely. Well, hey everyone, I'm Sarah Romanco and it's really great to be here. So a little bit about me, I will date dates back to elementary school. So when I was, when I was in elementary school, I was learning how to play Monopoly and I discovered from an early age that I loved to negotiate and I really loved the idea of business and just everything about it. And I was asking a bunch of random questions when I was little, I was like, like, why are there so many McDonald's? And then I learned that they were franchises. And so I think just these really interesting questions paved the way to fast forward to high school. I took over 10 business classes at my public school, which is a really unique experience. I watched every episode of Shark Tank. And then when I was in college, I was a part of my school's entrepreneurship club. I went to a lot of startup and VC events. And then my junior year, I took my, I had my first VC experience where I actually learned how to evaluate startups. I was sourcing startups, meeting with founders, performing diligence. And I think that just really told me like, this is the career for me. And I it was just the most fun for me. It didn't feel like it was work. It was like, wow, I could do this all day. Excellent. I must confess, I do not have a sensible path I can trace back to when I was a wee young lad of, yes. Of course, that's why I'm a marketer, because of the reasons then. I ended up here through, <clears throat> I don't know what. But that's cool to hear. And that focus for, since early days, it's quite impressive. You're obviously a, a due diligencing expert. I'm a, I've helped dozens of startups build their early stage marketing engine by being led by data. And of course, data is a big part of what you do too. But there's a difference, I think, between what works for your audience, and what sells, and what investors need to see for real? What do you see startups need to do with data as part of interfacing with VCs on a due diligence journey? Absolutely. That's a great question. First, I'll start off by addressing the common question that a lot of startups have is what should they put on their financials? Because a lot of early stage startups, it's all about projections, right? And they're wondering, what do I put to get a VC interested? Not only get them interested, but get that investment. So the first thing I'll say with that is when you're projecting your financials, it's really important to be realistic, but make sure that the market that you're basing those numbers off of is large enough for a VC to care. A slight tangent here is that I evaluated a startup. It was a great idea, but the VC said the market's not big enough, so I'm not interested. But with that in mind, you need to make sure that you can defend that because ultimately when you're evaluating, when you're um, writing these financial, you're or not writing, but you're uh, creating these financials, you want to make sure that you're saying, okay, this is my thought process. Cause that's what a VC is really looking for is there's, they're not saying, are you going to guarantee you're getting me a 10 return? Obviously that would be nice, but we want to see how you think. Why did, why are you saying you're going to get to 50 million in three years? Like that's a huge number. So how is that going to work? And then another thing too, with diligence is that 
a VC really wants to see your vulnerability, see your honesty throughout your journey. I think a lot of founders think that they have to be perfect. And that's a common misconception is they'll try to say everything's great. Like we have this great startup, like we're, you're going to do a, well, there's going to be no issues. But one of the startups that I met with that I, I remember the best is he told me that things didn't necessarily go well with him on a previous startup. He learned from his mistakes and then he started a new startup. It became a Techstar startup and ultimately they're doing quite well now. And I remember that story and it would definitely make me a lot more likely to recommend him for an investment because he told me about a hardship that he went through. So I think it's understanding that it's important to share a story and be vulnerable. Obviously you shouldn't be desperate. It's never good to say we like when you think of urgency and this is a great tip that I, I gave when I gave to a, a panel that or it was like a panel or event I was speaking on, I was like, make sure that you say that it's urgent, that the problem is urgent, but the money is not urgent. Because as soon as a VC hears that the money is urgent, one, they say, okay, you just, you're, you haven't really properly planned. And two, we can take advantage of you because we know you need the money and we can get a, a better deal for us. Definitely. That is, it's so much easier to raise money when you don't need it. Exactly. Exactly. And one of my, one of the startups I'm working with, they had been shopping around and just no one's interested. Nobody cared. And now they finally got it working where they're buying business. This crowd tamers is performance marketing agency. They're buying new clients at a high enough ROAS that they're getting them paid off the same month. So they're just running on their credit card. And now suddenly VCs go, Hey, can we cut you a check? And the startups are like, why? If I just pay my credit card off on time every month, my limit keeps going up. I can give non-dilutive credit line here and just go with it. And there's reasons why you want to have something in the bank. So that's not the only way you can grow, but it is, it's always easier to raise money when VCs see you don't desperately need them. Uh, and of course we're in a bad market right now, right? A lot of folks thought things were great 18 months ago and went, I've got time to raise. And now they're yes. screwed, but that's the boom and bust of the market. What are some key trends or shifts that you're seeing early stage startups should be aware of right now? I'll name just a few and they're in a lot of different areas when I think of trends. So I think the first one is the amount of time it takes to build a relationship before you're actually able to raise money. So I think in the past, and some VCs are still open to this, is they'll say, okay, you can send me a cold email and we can chat and you can get funded in a few weeks to a few months. But now VCs are more focused on, do I know you? Do I know that you can persevere through challenges? How long is how, how long have we known each other? And then they would consider making an investment. And I think that's something that's really tough for a lot of founders to understand because they just like, and this is something um, a VC told me, as he said, a lot of founders see VCs as a bank. They see us as a source of capital and nothing else. They don't realize the human aspect. And ultimately, I think when you're going to, to events now, it's important to not try to pitch a VC. And this is true always, but especially now you want to show that you want to build that relationship with them because you want to focus on the long-term gain. And, and it is honestly really difficult um, because like I'm one of my roles right now is I'm actually helping a startup raise money. And it's difficult because yes, we need the money, but we also have to recognize that it takes time to get that money because like I said, like the, you, like you said, the market's bad. And then another thing too, is that because the market's bad, VCs are more, more focused on follow-on funding to their current portfolio companies as opposed to new startups. And so as a startup, you're not only competing with startups they may already know and considering for new investment, you're also competing with their existing portfolio companies who already have a proven track record. And so when you're thinking about raising money, you really need to understand, okay, 
here's what it takes. Here's how I'm going to go throughout this process and understand that you have a backup plan if the raise doesn't happen. Now, the second trend I'll talk about is completely different. It's more along the lines of um, what VCs are investing in. So there's been a lot of talk about AI recently, and there's been a lot of AI startups. And one thing I'll, I'll say to that is, is it's really important for startups to really make sure that they are um, not trying to mislead VCs. And what I mean by that is I've met with really great AI startups. They're truly AI. They're doing something revolutionary. I've also met with startups who say they're AI, but they're just using it as a buzzword and it's not truly AI. And this has caused some investors to um, not invest in AI altogether because they're concerned that it's just like, it's just a buzzword and everyone's doing it and it's hard to see the differentiator. And so that ruins it for the startups that are really good. So what I would say to that is you don't have to be an AI startup to succeed right now. Yes. Like Y Combinator is investing in a lot of AI startups, but that's just like one, one accelerator program, but really focus on what you're doing and why it's special. And it doesn't have to be AI. Some VCs are all in on AI. Some are just like, we're going to not touch it. So I think the important thing for that is just make sure to stick with what you're doing and not try to shift it based on what the trend is, because ultimately you're playing the long game and a VC is going to really notice that. And I'll pause there. Awesome. All right. I agree. It, it's interesting. Everyone wants to tack towards the headwind here of AI, right? And be like, I'm going to, I'm an AI company now. I too have learned how to write a prompt for ChatGPT, but you can also run counter to this giant prevailing wind. There's tons of people who are in sectors where there is money, health tech, agri-tech, gov tech, a bunch of places where they actually can't use OpenAI for a bunch of stuff because SOC 2 compliance, right? But if you're building in that space, since everybody's looking over there now, there's actually room for you to stand out a bit from the crowd. That's a good point. I'd say uh, my clients right now, I don't actually currently have an AI client. Everyone I'm working with is they're building a startup that's succeeding in some other space instead. You've both of us mentor startups, right? You've been mentoring startups. You've talked about a couple you've been speaking to already. Give me an example of a memorable experience that you've had that impacted both you and the startup. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I'll say I love getting to promote really good startups. And so I'm going to say the name of the startup as well as the founder, just because uh, I'd love to give her some promotion briefly. But essentially, so this relationship started in May 2023. And the context for this is that I do a lot of networking and I'm in a lot of Slack groups like uh, LinkedIn groups, Discord, etc. And I just reach out to founders cold and say, Hey, let's meet. And I like, I'd love to help you because I love paying it forward. So this startup it's called Dextigo. It's an AI soft skills coaching platform. And what's great about this is it's truly AI. And that's also why I really like it is I respect the fact that the founder has done a great job. It's female founded. The founder's name is Ioana. She has extensive experience being in like chief of staff, VP of people roles. They've got a really great team. And ultimately we connected back, like I said, in May. And I just reach out to say, hey, can I give you feedback on your startup? I love to learn. I'm in VC and this is what I do. Over that time, we've developed a really great relationship. So just a few things that we've done. So I suggested the idea for and led the recruiting of as well as participating in her focus group. That was um, focused on not only Gen Z um, students, but also Gen Z uh, professionals, right? So it was really two different types of people and ultimately seeing how they could contribute to her product. I provided a testimonial for her startup that was featured on her website. I wrote a feature for her startup in the Venture Scout Spotlight, which is a 
Spotlight. It's a newsletter that is that is written by one of the programs I'm a part of, and it promotes startups that's a scout source. I introduced her to a VC that was actually interested through the Venturist platform. And then next month, I'm going to be speaking on a panel about the future of work that's hosted by her startup. And so the thing about this relationship that I really love is that it's a genuine relationship and we're really focused on helping each other. And it was very natural. It wasn't like, Hey, can you do this for me? I'll do this in return. It was like, I genuinely want to help you. I genuinely care. And I really support what she's doing because throughout high school, I had the opportunity to, in addition to doing these business classes, compete in various business competitions and really develop my own soft skills. And I really saw the need for that because especially in venture capital, whether you're on the VC side or on the founder side, there's a lot of skills that you really can't teach. And so to me, like the company really speaks to me and what they're doing. And that's something whenever I associate myself with founders and with startups, I want to believe in the mission. And so getting to not only like help her, but actually lead her towards a potential investment like that, that was really exciting for me. Yeah, that's pretty cool. The average founder for a startup is usually in their like 40s. Yes. And you're probably not 40 looking at you. Correct. <laughs> How does that dynamic work? It's definitely been a little bit difficult because I, like you said, I'm on the younger side. And I think one thing I've really learned is how to establish credibility with founders. And this is something that is really true for, because there's a lot of younger VCs out there who might be meeting with founders, like you said, who are maybe twice their age. And I think the most important thing is to, like what I've led with is one, I'm not a founder and I haven't been a founder, but I've worked with startups and I have a long history of doing this over the past several years. And then I also am able to provide examples of ways that I've actually helped. And that is able to bring that credibility and earn that respect. Another thing I will also say too, is that being the first point of interaction is actually a great way to filter good versus bad starts for VCs, because sometimes founders will be like, I only want to meet with the managing partner. Like, I don't want to just talk to an analyst or I don't want to talk to a scout. And that really shows the VC how the founder will treat people. And so it's actually a great way to say, okay. Like this founder actually can treat people of all different backgrounds, all different experiences. And that, that to me is just, it's just, it's like a great, a great way to understand. And so I've had a good experiences with founders. I've had really bad experiences with founders, but ultimately it's learned, I've learned, okay, here's how I can, can better help the founders as well as making sure that I, I help contribute to a more inclusive industry. And that's another thing was like DE and I, that's something I'm really passionate about. And so it's okay. I really want to make sure that we're changing the industry in a positive direction. Yeah. There's a hiring trick I have heard of where you, you meet your candidate, you go to a restaurant and you have them mess something up. Yes. And then you see what happens, right? And that tells you a lot about how that person handled when things don't go right. But I think it doesn't work with people like under the age of 40, because my answer is if they screw up my order, I will eat it and then just never go back there ever again. Yes. Like that's my, I'm not going to make a big deal because nobody meant to cause this, but if your kitchen's that bad, cool. I know not to come back. So I'm not sure how well that would do as a screening tactic for people under the age of 40. I think you brought up a good point, which is in the startup space, speaking as straight white dude over the age of 40, that's what it looks like. You look at every VC, like you look at the team and there's 25 old white guys and then inevitably one or two very clearly diversity hires. That needs to change, right? I'm yes. happy that in my client base, of course, I have some straight white guys. I've got a couple people of color. I've got some women. I've, I'm helping founders across the spectrum. You also, I'm sure, care about that as well. How important do you think it is and how do you think 
founders and VCs both can help improve and foster inclusion in the startup ecosystem? Yeah, this is a great question. And this is uh, definitely something that is, it's it's tough in the sense that I, I love it, but there's also so much work to be done. Um, and I think what I'll start off by saying is my, my specific focus is on supporting um, female founders and underrepresented founders. Um, and I, I support fo all founders, right? But just specifically those, those types of founders and ultimately and the reason for that is last year less than two percent of funding went to female founders and i believe about it seems like 0.13 percent went to minority founders and I, it could even be less than that right and it's so important because there's a lot of really good ideas out there that have the potential to be like huge businesses right but they're just not able to have access because of the current makeup of the VC landscape. And it, it's ultimately, it, it starts really with the talent and how the talent is hired. And this is something I've learned over time, just a little bit of deep dive into how the VC industry works for the listeners out there. But ultimately VC as a whole is really hard to get into as a career because you have to know somebody, you have to go to a really good school, or you have to have a lot of money. And that already makes it difficult for a lot of people to get into it. And then if you are able to get into it, a lot of the roles are unpaid. And that's difficult because you have to be able to be from a certain economic background to be able to actually afford to break into VC. And the reason these roles are unpaid is because a lot of VC firms, like people are like, hey, I'd like to get into this career, but they don't actually have the money because of the way a fund is structured. And that's a whole other topic. But ultimately what's important about this is that they just don't, they don't have that money and they'll just do a lot of unpaid internships. And for full transparency, I'm doing a lot of unpaid internships because I'm trying to get that experience. But the thing is not everyone has the means to do. So then when you're bringing people into um, the industry, it's the same types of people over and over again on average because like I said, you have to be from a certain background. Then those people make funnels down, they will be looking at startups that are from their specific background. So it's okay, if I'm like, if I'm this type of person, then I'm gonna bring in startups who I know who I feel comfortable with because there's been studies done that VCs like to invest in people they feel comfortable with. And this is why it's so great to bring in female VCs and VCs of, that are minorities because they know people from their own background and they can, they not only have the insight to provide, which is amazing because they actually can respect and understand, but they actually know a lot of people. And that's why I was talking with one VC and she's, yeah, we brought on a female investor and she brought us so many amazing female founders because she's in all these communities. And so it's once you start making that change, it starts funneling down and you're able to make a huge impact. But ultimately the challenge is that when you don't have those VCs, I've heard stories of VCs who have been disrespectful to certain types of founders because they just don't, one, they don't understand and two, they just have a certain way of investing or they have a certain belief that there are certain types of investments, right? You gotta be like, from Harvard or Xfang or something. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I don't, I know it exists. I don't understand it. My, my thinking has always been, look, find where money happens and then do more of that. But that is also how I'm a very data led marketer and I've worked with some clients who go, yes, those made money, but we don't want them to look like that. We want them to look like this. And I go, but that makes less money. And they go, yes, but we like it better. And I go, but that makes less money. And so once we reach that point, I'm like, I guess I'm not the right marketer for you anymore. The same for me in the VC space or in the investment space, right? I've written a couple of small checks and it is in my case, I'm like, Hey, do I see what your business is doing? Do I understand it? And can it scale? Awesome. Mm -hmm. I don't care much about your background 
beyond that if I believe you've got what it takes to make it grow from there. But as you're any VC, any investor looking to write a check, you've got to innovate. Otherwise, not really going to be a VC scale business. You can make tons of good money owning a lawn care company, right? But this is not a VC scale business. So you've got to do something different, but that brings risk. You help with due diligence, and that is all about balancing innovation and risk. How does a startup founder navigate that themselves? Absolutely. So I think one thing that's really important when you're when you're starting a startup is first you have to consider is and this is a little off track, but we'll get to the main question, is the startup VC backable, like you were mentioning. And so I think it's important to understand one is it VC backable, but two, is VC like the right path for your startup? Because sometimes when you bring a VC onto the board or startup, they may try to bring your startup in a different direction to where you may not be able to innovate as much. And what I mean by that is VC has pressure from their limited partners to make a high return, right? You need to make sure that you're innovating in a way that makes sense to scale your business, but you're not putting too much additional risk to where it would concern the VC. And ultimately, I think like when I'm advising startups, I say, first of all, why are you raising VC? Is it because you want the money or is there some additional value add that you want to help you innovate? Because there's a lot of other options out there for startups. There's crowdfunding, there's friends and family, there's angel investments, there's small business loans. And startups really need to understand what happens with the VC investment. It's not just a check and then the VC goes and, and is a silent investor. It's here's a check. We're going to take what, like 15% of your company. We're going to be involved in a lot of what you're doing. We're going to need updates. We're going to need you to send us your updated financials. Like we're going to, we're going to do all these other things. And it's a lot of work for the founder actually to get an investment. And so that's why a lot of founders don't realize that there's also the dilution aspect, right? And so I think what's really important is to understand two things. And this is something I didn't mention earlier, but one, you want to understand what the VC is looking for in the sense of, so let's assume that you've gotten an investment from a VC and they're saying, okay, we want you to prioritize getting a certain return or trying to scale effectively. You really want to make sure that you're meeting their standards, but also meeting your own. And what I mean by that is you really want to make sure that you understand who your customers are and you're innovating in line with what your customers are looking for. Earlier, I mentioned that I was a part of a focus group. And that's really important because early on, you want to make sure that you know what the problem is that the customers are facing and you're innovating very quickly. So along those lines, you'll put a product out into the market. You want to put the, uh, the product into the market very quickly and then get feedback. So whether, for example, that's in a beta version and you want to innovate and fail fast and then fail forward, right? That's something I like to tell startups. And so when you're balancing that, that innovation and risk, make sure that it's moving your startup forward in a positive direction, but it's done very quickly because ultimately that increases your chances of success. It also makes the VC happy because then the VC says you're innovating, but it's like a low risk, right? Because if you make a very low, like a, or a very low risk mistake, then it's not going to have an impact in the future. The thing I focus on in all of my interactions with founders is I focus on transparency, number one. Not only when I'm explaining what I do, but also when I'm telling founders to explain what they do. For example, I talked about how I created my own personal brand where it highlights my experiences doing public speaking events like such as this, being on podcasts, like being on podcasts like this, and then also advising startups in various roles, right? But one thing I've been very clear on is that 
I'm not making investments out of my own personal capital. And I've made that very clear because I don't want founders to be misled. So similarly with the founder, it's important that they are clear that whenever they're reaching out to a VC or they're explaining what their story is, they have data to back everything up that they're doing. And they're not trying to be too, I'm trying to think of the word where we're, we're not too forward thinking, but too, we believe we can do this, but we, but it's actually not possible. And we're trying to mislead people. So I think really it's, it's leading from the sense of honesty and transparency and making sure that you can back up everything you're doing and you would feel comfortable like having that publicized, right? Like I said, like I'm everything that I'm doing, I'm making sure I'm very honest about it and that I, I do venture capital sourcing, I do advising, I do diligence, but it's not my own money that I'm investing. I actually read a book about a week or two ago that is excellent and it's where I dive, derive some of the skills from to pre present to startups. So it's called The Secrets of Sand Hill Road and it explains how to fundraise effectively as well as what to look out for and from VCs. One thing that I really like about this book is that it explains the terms that you should look out for on a term sheet and how that can affect you as a startup when you're fundraising. For example, dilution. So there's like full ratchet, that's just like random name I threw out there on the term sheet, but like full ratchet or weighted average, there's different ways to evaluate dilution and that can have a huge effect on how much how much equity you have in the company after raising not only after the first round but after the following rounds and so that's just one thing as a founder that you should be very careful about another thing that i really liked about the book was the fact that they actually presented some really great legal cases to explain what not to do when you are forming a board of a startup and what those cases highlighted was that above all else you need to make sure that everyone's best interests are at heart so for example like if you're looking to have an exit of the company you can't give certain board members more money to entice them to make the sale if you're going to be giving less money to the common shareholders right so this book it's it's just really great insights and it's a great investment in my opinion not only in terms of money but in terms of time it's written by a well-known C who was a part of several different startups before that he's at a 16 he was at a 16 Z and so I think it's just really important that you as a founder you take the time to not only work on building your business but if you are really interested in raising you really need to understand not only what we mentioned earlier in terms of what to look for in a VC and all of that but really pass that initial conversation of are they the right strategic fit and do the terms meet my startup I think it's really important to just say, okay, I believe in this. I think you go spend enough time to really test out. And if it doesn't work, move on and know when that point is, but just make sure that you've given it your all before making that decision. I love to talk to founders of all backgrounds and give them free pitch deck advice, advice on how to improve their business, especially advice on fundraising, but really focused on female and underrepresented founders just because my personal mission is to decrease the funding gap among these founders. Ultimately, people ask, why do you do this for free and how can you do this for free? It's a huge sacrifice for me to be able to do it for free, but ultimately it's a way to get more experience in VC to ultimately prepare me for a career full-time because one thing that is really difficult about the industry is being able to find like a full-time role at a firm. And so ultimately my goal is to provide value while getting experience. So it's a win. I think one thing that I would say is just really think about who your customer is when you're starting a startup. That's really the most important thing and make sure that you're solving a problem and you're not creating a problem 
and then solving that after you've created it. And that's extremely important because as a founder, you're going to be spending a lot of time on this company. A lot of people think that founder life is glamorized, but I have met with a ton of founders and I've seen firsthand the difficulties that they face, the struggles that they face, the personal sacrifices to really get their business off the ground. So I think just really understanding that if this is a path you want to go down, be sure you're passionate about it and you're not doing it for the money. Because as we all know, entrepreneurship is a very a cost intensive route. But if you really work at it, it can turn out really good.